This episode of No Quarter is sponsored by the Underground Retrocade. You love these games, and the way you want to play them is on the original cabinets. You want to see the side art, you want to feel the controls, and you want to hear songs like Owner of a Lonely Heart on the stereo. But is there anywhere left you can go to play all those classic games in a real, authentic, arcade experience? Well, the answer is yes. The Underground Retrocade, 121 West Main Street, West Dundee, Illinois. I'm Carrington Vanston. I'm Mike McGinnis. <laughs> this is No Quarter, the classic arcade podcast. Hello, Mr. McGinnis. Hello, Mr. Vanston. How are you? I'm doing well. How are things in sunny Toronto? <laughs> it is sunny Toronto. It is, it is absolutely lovely up here, actually. It's been like 24, 25 degrees or so, which is... It's like freezing. <laughs> I know you're American, so you don't understand, <laughs> but it's totally beautiful. It's going to be like that for many days to come, which is awesome. But I'm going to be leaving soon because I'm going to be driving down to Kansas Fest, and I'm quite excited about it. So goodbye, nice weather. I'm going down to the place of tornadoes. I hear you've got quite a uh, a, a a list of diversions set up, too. I do. Yeah, we were talking about that before we recorded. Whenever I go on a road trip, I like to look up roadside attractions because one of the best things about america in fact probably the best thing about america is you guys have the weirdest things on the side of the road (laughs) i'm gonna see uh i think it's the world's largest ketchup bottle on this trip (laughs) i'm gonna see the lart the tallest totem pole east of the rockies i'm gonna drop by the uniroyal gal who's named vanna whitewall some giant statue from the 50s i think or something oh i'm gonna go to the birthplace of hot dog on a stick Come on, these are all the... Oh, and there's there's something called... I think it's the Museum of Things Swallowed. I'm going to go there. (laughs) America is amazing. (laughs) I'm so excited. I mean, yes, you're a crazy armed theme park and you scare the rest of us. But when you're not shooting it up, (laughs) uh, it's super fun to see your giant catch-up bottles. Never let it be said that we are not easily amused. (laughs) I am easily amused by it. (laughs) So yeah, I I love me some roadside attractions. So I'm going to try to hit a bunch on the way down and back. Awesome. It is awesome. Is our uh, feedback awesome? Our feedback is, is well, okay. <laughs> our feedback is awesome, but we are sometimes disappointing, I think, to our listeners. Because Anna wrote <laughs> sometimes. in well before last week to tell us about an upcoming event that we could have mentioned. And I forgot. <laughs> Whoops. So I apologize, Anna. Sorry about that. But she had written in prior to July 13th to tell us about an event on July 13th over at California Extreme, which was taking place in Santa Clara, California, where she and Wade Cruz, I think it's pronounced Cruz, were going to be presenting new custom pinball art that Wade had collected or created. And it was going to be part of something called Deluxe Flux, which is an arcade art installation. I guess it's it's kind of like a, a temporary pop-up gallery slash arcade that is traveling the country or maybe even traveling the world and the art is this street art style like it's like super dynamic urban stuff uh like uh it's just it's super gorgeous like just amazingly gorgeous and so we'll have links now in the show notes so you can see what you missed i apologize anna for not mentioning it because it actually looked really cool so i'm, I'm sad that we didn't uh, give it a shout out beforehand so uh, i'll have links to the deluxe flux arcade um info itself because i guess it's still touring and then there's a good link that she sent to an article 
for back when it launched. I think it launched in in Miami back in December. Um, so there's a good thing on Huffington Post about it. So that you can see lots of photos and see what you missed, unfortunately, and also then hopefully see it when it comes to a city near you. Uh, what else? Oh, you know, speaking of California Extreme, which took place back in, uh, I think it was July 12th and 13th, something like that. Anyway, there's a really good gallery online of photos from that event. So if you missed out, um, as I did, and as I think you did too, Mike, then you can check out the photos and live vicariously. You can't prove that I wasn't there. Uh, I'm going to look through the photos and see if I see you. Spot you. Where's Wally's now? <laughs> you have to oh, look really, Waldo really hard. <laughs> yeah, there you are. You're the striped shirt. <laughs> Tidy McGinnis. Just put you, Photoshop you in the background of everything. Just ruining um, everything for everyone. <laughs> oh, okay. Events. Speaking of events that you could ruin, here's one. <laughs> um, you like Donkey Kong and you've gone to the Kong off and stuff. So I guess there's going to be a Kong off four coming up. I don't really pay attention to those things, but... Before that, there's the Donkey Kong Online Open, which is Donkey Kong Online Open number four, and it's being sort of organized through the Donkey Kong Forum. I'll have a link to that, and it's an online Donkey Kong tournament that's going to run over the weekend of August 22nd to 24th. Arcade and main players are both allowed to compete, and basically you play the game, and you submit scores and stuff, and there's... Uh, you can enter for free. There's going to be cash prizes. Like the highest score gets $200. But what's nice is not only there are a bunch of scores for achievement and or a bunch of prizes for achievement and high score and that sort of thing, but there's even things like four $25 prizes that are given out randomly. So even if you stink <laughs> at Donkey Kong, you can play and have fun and could still win a prize. Like So I think that's pretty awesome. So I'll have a link to the – there's a post on the forum with all the – the rules and how you sign up and all of that. So lots of time to sign up. And if you're, if you're digging on Donkey Kong and you have MAME, and those are probably both true if you listen to this podcast, then you could um, join, have fun, maybe win 25 bucks. Sounds cool. Now, are these, are these also going to count as qualifying rounds for the actual Kong off? I think they are. I don't understand much of what you just said, but it rings a bell <laughs> in my tiny monkey brain because when I was reading the instructions, and by reading I mean skimming, and by skimming just looking for a way to link to it, uh, it said something about how if you, if you compete in this, it has something to do with your seed to the Kong off or uh, your yeah. positioning. So I'm going to say the answer is yes to your question. I remember in for past tournaments and the rules are very convoluted about who qualifies and team play and things like that. But the top players in the world, Hank Sheehan and Billy Mitchell and, and Steve Wiebe and people like that are invited and they fill up, I think like 10 spots. And then there are a bunch of other spots, maybe 10 more, maybe 15. I don't know that are open to, to competitors. And the only, the only, Qualification is that you have to score better than everybody else who's also trying to qualify. Okay, cool. So that kind of makes sense. Isn't that kind of like how golf opens work? Like anybody can get in, but you play qualifying rounds and your lower scores get in. I don't really I know nothing golf. about golf. So we're going to say that that is how it works. Yeah, that'll, that'll make it fun when we talk about golden tea and neither of, neither of us have any idea what we're talking about when it comes to golf. That'll be a familiar feeling. <laughs> talking about a game and having no idea what we're talking about. Shocker. We've been doing this for 90-some episodes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least we've got our stride. Um, <laughs> let's see. What else did we get? Uh, oh, oh, Rob wrote in to say, uh, Carrington, you mentioned really liking the industrial design of the Atari 800. Can I help convince you to finally get one? And he wrote us about the Atari 800, but he mentioned his new podcast. And he said it was just a personal note and he wasn't asking for a plug, but I'm going to plug him anyway. Because, well, first of all, 
new podcast. That's awesome. And it's got a great title. It's called Player Missile. Fantastic. So it's the Player Missile podcast, and it's an Atari podcast, but I really like the twist that he's doing here because it's a, it's a retrospective. So he's talking about the Atari 8-bit home computer systems, and I get that that's a little removed from the topic for our podcast here, but that means it's not competition and everybody can listen to everything. And so he's covering like the the Ataris, the, the magazines that cover them, and it's kind of going in a chronological order. So I think that's really cool. So it's a retrospective, and it's hitting the games chronological. I think that's pretty awesome. I have only listened to part of episode one so far because I only just got to it, but I will be continuing the rest. And I will have a link in the show notes. So, hooray. Yay for you. <laughs> well, yay for Rob. Uh, oh, and you know, speaking of the Atari 800, a, a listener named Peter, Peter Fletcher, actually offered me an Atari 800 because I really want one. And isn't that the nicest gesture ever? He's going to actually send me one. Like, we have the greatest listeners in the history of everything. I don't know if this will ne- necessarily make me like an Atari 800 guy more than an Apple II guy, but who knows? Maybe I'm going to launch like my own anti-antic podcast. And I'm going to take over the Atari world. <laughs> I think it's highly <laughs> unlikely, but it is like the nicest gesture ever. So I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you, Peter. That's really cool. Yeah. Oh, best listeners podcast. One of the nicest things about podcasting is you get like the nicest communities. Unless you're me. <laughs> well, yeah, you. but I find from the various shows I'm in that I get the nicest listeners. 60 pieces of hate mail from Douchegate and counting. And I have people writing in to offer me free computers. <laughs> you're fired. Awesome. Um, Okay, so we we also got feedback from last week's show about Springer. Oh, that (laughs) so awesome game. Uh, Rick wrote in to say, not sure if Springer was the worst game you've ever reviewed, but it's up in the top five. (laughs) Which got me thinking. As you two review games, you definitely have your favorites, and you have the ones that are so bad, they should come with a warning label so it's never to be played again. In the early 80s. Oh, you're so wrong about that. (laughs) Send in 68 mails to to back up about that. He continues, in the early 80s, there were magazines that would review games and rate them, especially Electronic Games Magazine, which I think might have been the first. Uh, They would end each year with the top video games and give them an award. I think they called the awards the Arkies or something. So here comes another idea for an after-school special of a podcast. What if at the end of the year, you two gave an award to the best video games in different categories? I know you already have favorites, but you're also finding out new games that you like as uh, you play some of these games for the first time. By the same token, not sure if there was a pun intended there, you could also give out awards for the worst games you've reviewed for the year. What would be interesting is that both of you have different tastes, so you could have your own best and worst awards list. I think you would have enough material for two podcasts. One show for the best and one show for the worst. It would also allow you to take holidays off if you have these pre-recorded and ready for uploading. Very good ideas, Rick. Thank you. I like those ideas very much. I could do, like, the worst games you made me play. (laughs) That could be a whole show right there where I complain. (laughs) I'm going to do some complaining. That's my job. Oh, okay. Well, well, then if you need to take a show off, I could step up and complain (laughs) about you. And then people would get like both of us. (laughs) Yeah. Um, what else? Oh, Karen wrote in. She had a bunch of questions. She actually wrote because she has questions about podcasting gear and RSS feed formats and that sort of stuff because she's going to be launching a podcast with, with some other gals, which is super cool. But then she asked us a couple of questions. The first is when we travel, do we actually you know, make sure that we go to arcades when we travel to other cities. Do we seek out, and if we do, do we seek out new games that um, we, when we have real money on the line, or do we just replay our old favorites? So let's say you, Mike, do you go to 
to arcades where you're in other cities? I try to. I was in California, Southern California last summer. I remember going to uh, a lot of uh, doing some doing some research uh, online and going to places and finding that certain arcades were closed. And um, but I, I found a couple of interesting uh, little arcades and uh, had a good time. I know that when we were in Kansas Fest last year, somebody actually set up an arcade kind of for us. At, at That's the, right. Uh, the Alamo Draft House, and that was a great time. <laughs> I don't that know. was super fun, wasn't it? That was yeah. one of the best things of last year's Kansas yeah. Fest. I don't. I, I tend to try to. I try new games to me, you know. So, so if there are games that that are from you know that era that I've never played before, those are kind of like the first on my priority list to find and play. Um, I don't later games that are newer or brand new, like you know, I don't play House of the Dead. I, you know, I'm not really into the fighter games and things like that. So. Um, as far as new as in more newly manufactured, uh, that's of less interest to me. What about you? Uh, I'm totally the same way that I, ne- I really have no interest in modern video games. I don't bother playing those at all. If I go to an arcade, it's cause I'm specifically seeking out retro games. I will seek out a, a retro arcade. Um, the, my problem is diff- usually finding the arcade. I, I, I know there's a bunch of sites I think that list where retro arcades are to be outdated but yeah exactly and then i'm always worried i'm going to take some side trip uh, if i'm taking a road trip and it's like a half day trek out and just find that it's closed i guess i could call ahead of time there are ways <laughs> that a less lazy person could solve this problem um but yeah for me personally yeah i love visiting arcades the whole arcade experience absolutely when i'm at one it, it does seem to be the case that for the most part what i do is seek out games that I already know. And I don't think it's just because I've now, like she says, have money on the line, like I'm paying money to be there. It's more that I'll usually only have a fixed amount of time I can be at the arcade and I'm I'm there for fun. And so I'm going to go with the known quantities. And these are games that I that I know that I like, that I, I like the experience of playing them. For the most part, what I do is I, I particularly will seek out games with bizarre controls, things that are really hard to play in main. Yeah. So I see something with a with a, a spinner that's different than I have or, or just like those bizarre and whatever strange anything with a steering wheel the stuff that it's hard for me to play at home those are the games that i'm particularly drawn to that i'll enjoy while i'm while i'm there i look for those you know like spy hunter because it's got the, the weird control scheme yeah I, I look for star wars um you know because of the, the little yoke controller i look for rare versions of games you know like the there's that the, the star trek um, the Star Trek arcade game that, and there's the, it's the sit down captain's chair. Oh, that's a environmental, great one. but it's like, yeah, it's like in three places or something like that. So, um, yeah, anytime I can find something like that. And if, if I'm doing research on a forum and, and somebody's posted like, hey, I saw this cabinet at this place and I'm going to be in that area, I'll, I'll make an effort to go out of my way to get to there to see if I can play that game. That's a really good point. Yeah. Like if I see some, uh, like an environmental cabinet, you go in, there's a, like a discs of Tron or something uh, that I'm just done for the day. <laughs> like I'm just, just lock me in. That's all I'm going to do. Yep. I, I heard there's a, there's going to be a sorry, Charlie somewhere <laughs> at an arcade in Kansas city. So when I'm out there for Kansas, Fest, speaking, speaking of locking me in, <laughs> definitely going to be uh, trying to find that one. <laughs> That'd be awesome. That'd be terrifyingly awesome. Um, okay, so what else? Oh, Jonathan wrote in. <laughs> he wrote in, he says, Dear Tigger and Eeyore. I wonder who's who. Mm. <laughs> it says, Carrington talks too fast and Mike talks too quiet, but both of you have this, and oh, sorry, and both of you have the strangest taste and opinions about video games, but somehow your show works. Oh, thank you, Jonathan. Um, I look forward to it every week, and you've introduced me to so many new games to play. 
well, mostly you introduced me to a lot of new games you convinced me not to play, mm-hmm. but you took the bullet for me and I appreciate it, and you also introduced me to a few new ones that sound great too. I would ask you to review my favorite game, Street Fighter 2, but I already know how much you like fighters, so please keep away from my baby. But keep up the great work. I really enjoy your show. So I thought I'd bring that up because it was a new listener. I liked his his take on how, for the most part, we have warned him off games. So I don't know if that's good or bad, but uh, thank you, Jonathan. And uh, next week, we'll be re- reviewing Street Fighter 2. I, I think we should do three or four Street Fighter 2 episodes in a row. In a row. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> so, <yep. laughs> and just only talk about what we don't like about oh, it. Oh, yeah. And email it directly to Jonathan, <laughs> <laughs> whose home phone number we're now posting here. <laughs> that's right. No, actually, thank you for the email, Jonathan. I appreciate it. Um, Chet wrote in to tell us about the Museum of Soviet Arcade Games, which Mike and I were looking at right before we podcast. It's so awesome. So it's this Museum of Soviet Area Video Games that have been... uh, So the museum, or quote-unquote museum, was opened by just a couple of students, and it's in the basement of a small technical university just outside of the center of Moscow. So I'll have a link in the show notes. It's awesome. It is so crazy cool, and it made me immediately want to go to there. Isn't this the coolest thing, Mike? It is awesome down to the Soviet-era tokens that in 1978 on the back and have the CCCP uh, logo on the other side. I just want to go and move in there and live there forever. Yeah, and the games, and it's all in Cyrillic, and they're just cool-looking games, and they just... It's such a great combination of 80s video games and the style that I like, but with all a whole Soviet bent to them fantastic fantastic yeah. so strongly recommend people hit the show notes and check out the link it's really really cool yeah definitely that uh it, it's in a, a a location they've painted it over the, wa- the walls i mean you're not walking into a place that's got rats and and pools of water laying around things like that um but there's there's definitely as you're looking at this thing there's there's a certain you know it harks back to the the 1980s era or maybe even further back soviet um concrete austere architecture you know where everything is sharp angles and and gray and and stark and and imposing and and kind of terrifying and wonderful yes so so cool looking oh he also sent us a link to a flyer for a game called Ridge Racer Full Scale which is this huge arcade game so he wrote you guys were discussing some big cabinets during your arcade draft well i think i have you all beat check this out so he sent us a link so this is a cabinet that's massive. It draws 1,700 watts of power when it's playing. Oh and it's a racing game, obviously, from the, the Ridge Racer part of the name. And it's got this mammoth wraparound projector screen, and you sit in a full-size car. And <laughs> not, not even just full-size. The cabinet is the size of a room, and it contains an actual, real Mazda Miata that you sit inside to play this game. Like, you can have a friend sit in the passenger seat and join you for the arcade game because it's an actual car. So that's talk about uh, like a real race driving game. <laughs> like it's yeah. super, super huge. Ridiculous I'm, looking, huge. I'm looking at this flyer that you sent me in the, the, this environmental, I guess, cabinet, if you want to call it that, uh, the weight is 3000 kilograms. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> uh, one thing that, that you didn't mention, I'm looking at this, this museum of, of uh, Soviet awesomeness and arcade games. So good. If you scroll down to the very bottom, he he ends up, he says, I'll finally I'll end with the most utilitarian soda machine ever. And it's this, I, I don't really know how to describe it. It looks like if you reach in, that mouth might just grab your arm and <laughs> stamp the Soviet star on it and hand you your, your fake, you know, your, your Coca-Cola knockoff or whatever. <laughs> Coca-Cola, <laughs> but spelled with K's. That's right. And you're, 
and your uh, um, counterfeit Levi's jeans, you know, because I, but um, <laughs> since there are three options, uh, one Copec for plain soda water and uh, two, three Copec op- options for flavored soda. And this thing is just a monster. Fantastic. Yeah. I, everything about that is just such a great site. Like, oh, I just love it. I want to go to there. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, what else? Oh, you know what? One more. Okay. So Michael wrote in to send us a link to Tron HD. So it's over something at, at jarrettheather.com, and it's, I guess, Jarrett and Heather, and they have their own home arcade that they call the Heather Home Arcade. And so this was a Tron, Tron cabinet that um, they had got, and it was Not in really, great shape. It was in, yeah, very rough shape, and, and they totally restored it to make it beautiful and like new, just absolutely pristine, but then replaced the monitor with an LCD screen, and you would think, why would you do that? You're just going to have 60 people write you in nasty emails. <laughs> Haven't right. we established that that's what happens? Well, they'll write so, me nasty emails. <laughs> if you do that to your arcade game, people write nasty things to Mike. <laughs> Don't you understand what you're doing to Mike when you do these things? <laughs> so you would wonder, other than it's fun to send bad email to Mike, why would one do this to your screen? Like, Why would you beautifully, pristinely restore this thing and then replace the LCD screen? And the reason is you'd need a higher resolution. But why? You continue if I would let you speak. Why would you need a higher resolution? Because this guy has made his own custom version of the Tron software. So Tron HD, he created in the .NET with the XNA framework. I don't know what those are because I'm not a Microsoft guy. But the he wrote it in C Sharp, wrote it completely from scratch using no plugins or game engines or anything. And so here's the quote. So the program was designed by capturing the output from MAME running from the original arcade software and then analyzing it frame by frame to reverse engineer the game logic. Adjustments were then made to double the frame rate of the gameplay and the graphics were unpressed up from 480 by 512 to a full 1200 by 1600 which is the native resolution of the display in the cabinet. So Tron HD, he says, is an ever-evolving project. About once a year, he tinkers with the code and adds a new Easter egg or a new power-up to the higher levels of the game. In the future, he wants to integrate discs of Tron clone into the game as well. Unfortunately, he says, I have no plans to ever release the software publicly. Tron HD will only ever be playable on this specific Tron machine in the Heather Home Arcade. That's a shame, until you become friends, I guess, with Jared and Heather and go hang out with them and play the game. But at least you can go to the site and look at, you can see video playthrough. You can look at the, the new images. There's like a, a split screen of before and after. So you can see the resolution and it's crazy gorgeous really captures. I think the feel of Tron Tron should be in high depth with all those nice lines and glowing and ah, love it. Absolutely love it. This is a really cool, cool thing to do. Although because it is a change to a cabinet, I do feel obligated to send you some hate mail, Mike. <laughs> Well, my, just a thing. I'll, I'll open up my inbox right now and I'll just wait for it. <laughs> here, here it comes. That's a great Tron game. Mike. Mike. <laughs> so anyway, it's super cool. So I'll have a link to this in the show notes. I think that's awesome. Um, it does bring up, like, again, coming back to the idea, like, you know, this guy restores a cabinet and then puts in a high def screen. Why would you put an LCD? But at least this is an LCD that's being used and could always be restored again to the, the I'm, I'm a I'm a fan of Tron. It's one of my favorite cabinets. How dare you, sir? How dare I have that as one of my favorite cabinets? Well, that too, but how dare you tear up a perfectly good Tron cabinet for this? I apologize. <laughs> it's actually pretty sweet looking. I like no, it. it's this thing is really awesome. Definitely check it out. I uh, I say we grab our, our, our torches and our pitchforks and we go beat his door down until he gives us the code and yeah. releases it. 
Let's do it. Or at least beg him to let us play because it's awesome. That's more likely. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that instead. Um, I think that's it. That's an, that's enough news and feedback and stuff. I wouldn't know. I don't get any of those emails. Well, I just accidentally quit my email program, so that's all. <laughs> all right. I'm not going to relaunch it. That's all. That's all the email we're going to read. <laughs> So well, there you, go. you could uh, accidentally quit this game, too. I could have. What is this week's game, Mike? Why, it's Megazone by, we think it, it may be Konami, but um, there it, it looks like uh, it's rumored to have been developed by a company called Kosuka Company Limited. Uh, there is at least a few screenshots of the Megazone splash screen with a Kosuka copyright instead of Konami. So mm-hmm. I, I think And maybe, some early flyers that also have Kosuka on it. Mm-hmm. But this Kosuka doesn't seem to exist other than for this game. It's kind of well, weird. They did this, and they did one called Rock and Rope. Oh, I did not know that. Which, I, it looks like Kosuka was a software company. Maybe it was just one guy in his basement. I don't know. But they, it looks like they developed the games and let other people manufacture the cabinets. Okay, so maybe Konami just licensed it from them. But which is funny, because then Konami then licenses it to other people to build and, and put out as well. Yeah, because if you go over to the uh, the Klov, the, the Klov Arcade Flyer museum they're in, in their museum section they've got uh, all these flyers here um and there's at least one flyer that says it's copyright konami slash interlogic and that looks like that was what was uh distributed at least here in the united states aha um, uh-huh. and so yeah i don't uh i don't really know a lot about the history of this game I, I do know that that the code has some clues so if you go over to uh the cutting room floor tcrf.net they have quite a bit on on this game it looks like the uh, there were at least two versions of the code. Uh, the revision one has one set of, of developers' names in it, dated uh, September 20th. And there's a newer one from October 11th that has a slightly different set. It looks like um, the names are the same. Uh, they were just compressed for some reason. Um, but uh, and by the way, this TCRF thing is a pretty cool web web page. Basically, they, yeah, they go I think through, we mentioned it before, but I forgot have, all about it. Yeah, it's been a long time. They They go through the code and whatever else they can find and – Oh, hey, look at all this cool stuff we found in the code. For example, in this one, there's a uh, the wolf enemy from Puyen is in the code. The, the object graf- graphic is in the ROM. Nobody knows that's why, weird. but it's there. Um, there's a, a pink guy, pink thing that's in the code that apparently um, is not used in this or any other Konami game. It's it's right next to the wolf in, in the code. Um, there's some bug enemy that's in the game, but the animations for it aren't used. So, yeah, it's kind of neat. So you can see sort of things that were in development and then yeah, just didn't get used. Kind of gives you a, a kind of a little snapshot into maybe what they were thinking when when they were when they were developing, which I always find really, really interesting and cool. Mm-hmm. It's neat with the embedded names of the developers, because then you could look to see were those employees of Konami or were if not, then maybe those are the people from that Kosuka company. And you'd be able to sort of prove who did what. It's also kind of weird that they would in the later versions, abbreviate the names. Now, probably that's because, you know, you need to save space. You can't just move stuff around willy-nilly in byte code. Yeah. But I prefer to think it's because there was some sort of coup where people <laughs> rose up and seized control of the development and then they put the extra names in. So I'm going to prefer to think that that was the case. The socialist revolutionary. <laughs> yes, power to the people. So this game, uh, so uh, <clears throat> Megazone was, was officially released by Konami in 1983. Uh, in the middle of a lot of other games that were kind of similar to this. I, I saw a lot of comparisons online to... Uh, um, For me, it's Xevious. That's the one. Yeah, and, and that's I, that's not didn't immediately jump to my mind, but I don't play a lot of Xevious. I guess Xevious is... And we've covered Xevious, and, and 
Divius is a, a game where you're kind of, you, um, you're trapped sort of at the bottom of the screen and you, you have a little bit of vertical movement, but it's mostly horizontal and, and the map sort of scrolls beneath you and the bad guys come from the screen down on, uh, on top of you. And you kind of, you, you're, the idea is just to shoot your way through it and get to the end. And this is similar, but uh, the one thing that they pointed out that was different was that this is is does offer you some branching. So as uh, you know, with Zevius, it's just sort of a linear path. You go where the map takes you. This one uh, gives you some options. You can split to the left and the right in a couple of places. Um, I don't. There's not a whole lot of variation there, but it at least gives you the illusion that you're you have some choice over how the game ends. I like illusions. I do too. I like to I fool use, myself. I use games and. And overall, that's all they are anyway. So what the heck? <laughs> um, you're right. So yeah. So what we're dealing with here is basically a scrolling shooter. And I and I too. What, what reminded me of mostly was Zevius. A lot of people would talk about it, saying it's very similar similar to Scramble. But I don't see that at all. I mean, other than it shows your progress, um, which Scramble does. Except it's. I think it shows your progress more like how Ghost and Goblins does it, like with a map. Because here, Megazone, which is this game shows you like a map and where you are at the start of each of your life or really at the end of each of your lives. Cause it shows that after you're, you're dead mm. as well. Um, so f- I, and I, and I kind of like that. And I liked, like you were saying that the fact that it branches, cause you're kind of following a river basically. Weirdly, you're a tank. That's the thing we should talk about. So you're a tank, but it plays like you're a spaceship. Like you, you fly around, you can strafe back and forth just as, as fast as you can move up and down. So your movements are, aren't at all tank-like, I thought. Well, from here's reading from, from the flyer. Um, it says, your mission is to advance through enemy territory and destroy the ominous command tower. Take position in your amphibious rocket tank. Uh, by use of the eight-way joystick and fire button, you must choose your path carefully and take precise aim while keeping watch of the enemy's every move. You encounter a multitude of enemies, which varies depending on which path you choose. The most powerful of all the enemies is a figure fashioned after an eyeball. Oh, you Japanese. Uh, when you <laughs> collect 12 power pods, Meg, in capital letters, M-E-G, appears on the screen. Uh, in consuming Meg, your size and firepower triple by joining forces with one of the remaining tanks. Uh, you'll need, And you'll need to. Some enemies can only be, destroyed by, only be destroyed by multiple hits. The screen continues until you reach the Megazone and annihilate the command tower, which is the only... Uh, which is only vulnerable when open. Your next mission awaits. And the command tower is basically a face. It's so <laughs> bizarre because there's eyeball. There's a huge variety of enemies here, like lots yeah. of these flying enemies. They a lot in attack and formation. Again, it's very Zevious that way. There's there are bombs that will appear sort of and fly at you on a forty five degree angle with this buzzer noise. And however, I thought the enemy sprite graphics were kind of crappy. I mean, you know, they're the space, but a lot of them don't even look like ships. Like there's this iron cross thing. There's small eyeballs. There's big eyeballs. I kind of like the eyeballs, to be honest. Um, (laughs) There are these instant walls, like walls will just sort of appear. (laughs) I'm like, ah, (laughs) so like uh, they were quite surprising. But for the most part, I thought the graphics were kind of crappy. Like this is a very amateurish Xevious. It's like Xevious is so polished and so beautiful and and the tinkling sound of when you're shooting those those rotating walls. And this is kind of like Xevious redone by somebody who does not have the graphics chops to pull it off. Especially for 1983. So we're well into the arcade revolution at this point. And and we'll talk about the chips in a minute, but this, it was, it was definitely powerful enough to, 
have done better uh, and maybe they have to tone it down because there's so much going on screen going on on the screen at once, you know, that, that they found that it was lagging if they made it prettier, but, and I don't even think it was all that ugly. I just, they were kind of forgettable. You know? Yeah. I mean, totally. I, I look at this and it's just sort of meh. I, I didn't hate the graphics. I, they were serviceable. I, I could always tell where I was. I could tell where the enemies were. I knew, knew, Oh, I got to avoid this. You know, I could, I knew that I needed to shoot that. Um, but yeah, it's sort of this, you're scrolling the brown is kind of this repeating sprite that's kind of ugly. The the ground is this yeah, the brownish sprite and the the blue water is another repeating sprite. There's not a lot of variations. It's kind of like those the old really old cartoons, you know, that they actually made fun of in later cartoons where the background is like the same <laughs> the same sixty yards over and over and over again. You know, the same rock keeps going by as Bugs Bunny's running. Um, and that's kind of what a lot of this felt like. Yeah, um, you know, so not a terrible game, just sort of. Eh, I don't know. Also, the, it was weird that like the green blocks, well, I guess, are supposed to be trees. I, I assume, or maybe green mountains or something. And so you can't go through those with your tank. You can just go over. Since you're amphibious, you can just drive over the water. You don't splash. You don't slow down. It basically ignores the water. So calling it amphibious is fine, but it, it just it felt like a spaceship rather than a tank. And so you got these supposed trees or forests which are just a bunch of green blocks and you can't go through those and so those will add to the strategy a lot because they will often because of the shape of them they'll force you to the side of the screen or into a tunnel or whatever and those are the points where i would usually die because you wouldn't have the full screen to work with because the strategy here basically is to stay a couple inches off the bottom so you have lots of room to move just in case things go horribly wrong and when you get funneled by that by the green block shapes of forest um you just have so much less space and i find i would just die and it would be very frustrating because i was like i'm only dying because you're funneling me by these stupid things why can't i be in a in a spaceship instead of a an amphibious tank yeah it felt it felt like most of the effort uh in design went towards throwing a lot of enemies at you yeah you know like you said there's a huge variety of enemies and they all kind of have their own personality and they move and they, the sound is great and the combat is is crazy frenetic and um, you know, it really gets your, it can really get your adrenaline pumping, but the backgrounds are blah, the, the, the actual, everything else about the game is just sort of like, well, we have this, this great core and we need something else going on. So, you know, hand it to the junior guys, let the B team handle <laughs> the rest of this or something. Um, I was disappointed just now to learn you, when you were talking before reading the flyer, it talked about how the, when you shoot the eyes or whatever, they leave those, those power pellets, they're Maybe. numbered. I thought those were teardrops. They're kind of teardrop shaped. So I thought you like you shoot an eye and it's like leaving a little tear. And I thought that was awesome. <laughs> and so I'm disappointed to know that those aren't teardrops because I assumed that it was like the eye was crying because you shot it. And they have numbered tears. If you can pick up 12 tears, you become like the Meg fueled by the sadness mm. of your enemies. Like I had this whole thing in my head that I'm now disappointed to find out was just in my head. I'm sorry. Pretend I didn't say that. <laughs> ah, I feel better again. Excellent. <laughs> um, so the music, what did you think of the music of this thing? This kind of incessant tribal drum beat thing. I didn't think it was bad. Um, you know, it, it kind of, if you play it long enough, it sort of gets a little bit annoying. I didn't find myself reaching for the speakers to crank up the arcade ambience music or, or Metallica or something like that. But it, it does get a little bit repetitive. You know, there, we certainly played games where it's, the music has been much, much, ear bleedingly worse. Um, yeah. So basically just our standards have lowered over 90 something. Else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was serviceable. It was background noise. It would let me know that, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm playing an arcade game. Yeah. I, you know, I completely agree. I, it's not, 
it's barely music anyway. It's more just sort of a rhythmic kind of a, yeah, just a loop or something. But at least it was kind of frantic, and I did find it kind of added to the intensity of the game. And it is a pretty intense game. Like there's a lot of stuff on screen at once, like you were saying, and a lot of enemies, and they're coming. And you know, some of them take more than one thing to shoot. They're weird looking, so it does seem quite frantic. And I enjoyed that, and I thought the music fit that, although it's not music I would actually listen to. But it, it was suitable <laughs> for the game, so I'm totally with you on that. That I, I was I thought it was okay but not great. Um, overall, it's funny. I, I, I kept thinking when I'm playing this, like, I know this game. And I couldn't remember, like, why do I know this game? I was sure I had never seen it before in an arcade and never actually played it in an arcade. I don't think, I don't know if it even came to Canada. I've never seen this thing. And it finally hit me that it was actually reviewed by the 10th Pence Arcade back in, like, February or March or so on their podcast. I was like, oh, that's where I know this game from. Because I kept thinking, I know this and I don't know why. So, hello, Victor. Hello, Alexis. So, um, those jerks. Uh, those, those guys <laughs> beat us to this one. So, if I remember, Victor hated this game <laughs> and he called it, what was it? He introduced it. It was a total Cynthia, he called it. And it's a, like a joke that he explained, with the, which is actually pretty funny. So, you should go back and listen. I think it was episode eight or nine or something. Um, and then Chucky Egg. I think he thought it was all right, and I'm with him on that. I thought this game was actually okay, and I I remember how much Victor hated it, just thought it was like the worst game ever, and maybe it's just because we came off doing such a garbage game last week (laughs) that it's again anything is okay (laughs) but i actually kind of had fun playing it it's a frantic game it's not great looking it it, again Mm. it's like an amateur xevious but it's frantic it's fun i didn't have a problem with the collision detection that uh, that i think i read online people do i thought it was totally fine and i i quite i don't it's not going to make my favorites or anything but it's a fun frantic shooter and not totally serviceable and i actually enjoyed playing it yeah, I, I didn't hate it. I don't remember ever seeing this in, in any of the arcades that I frequented. And it may be just because Xevious was similar and much more popular, and that's what people played, or it may have been a bigger hit in Japan. Uh, I'm looking at the credits now, arcade history. Um, I, we had mentioned that, that this may have been written by Kosuka and licensed to Konami. ArcadeHistory.com has it developed by Konami and licensed to Kosuka. And if you look at the... They have the credits for the the, the lead programmer uh, Hiroshita, and he appears to be have been an employee of Konami because all the games that he developed were Konami games. And uh, he went on. It looked Megazone was his first game in '83, but the final game they have listed for him was in '91, and that was Crime Fighters Two. And he worked on a couple of uh, it looks like mostly fighters. Uh, there, there is a Super Contra title, um, and then things like Hard Puncher and crime fighters and stuff like that. But uh, it looks like, in fact, all of these programmers are listed as, as having been um, Konami employees. Yeah. And Hiroshita is the guy who's listed first in the name of the credits hidden in the code. According to that site, you had mentioned the, the cutting room floor. So that really does seem to indicate that he would be the lead developer. So, but yeah, overall, um, like I said, I, I don't, I don't remember seeing this and, and um, I don't know that I, in, in the arcade where I'm, you know, I'm limited on time and or money. I don't know that I would spend a whole lot of time with this, but, you know, playing it on MAME as an assignment for, for the podcast, yeah, I kind of enjoyed it. It wasn't, wasn't horrible. It didn't want to make me stab my eyes with a fork. Um, technically, it, uh, it had a, a M6809 as the main CPU at 2.048 megahertz. It also had a Z80 at 3.072 megahertz. Uh, the sound chip was an Intel 8039 at 477 kilohertz, and it had... An AY eighty nine ten for the sound chip, uh, a DAC, and 
um, a bunch of other sound circuitry. Uh, it was a two-player alternating game with an eight-way joystick and one button for fire. Yeah, exactly. The, now, the cabinet itself is one of those ones with two buttons, but it's on either side, and they're both basically just the same button. So it's a, it's a, it's an, an I'm going to say, am, say amphibious. <laughs> it's an amphibious cabinet. Well, that too. <laughs> it just can't go through trees. You want to push this in the water. <laughs> it was sold mostly as a conversion kit. It's the kind of thing that very few people would have been buying full cabinets. It was one of those generic cabinets, um, easy to convert. The um, And even when sold as a full cabinet, or even when it's recently, like if you look online and see people who have sold one of these in the last few years, it almost always appears to be a converted cab. Um, well, and no reason not to. I mean, this the game itself, I don't know, would have gained anything by having a big fancy cabinet. I mean, it's, it's the stick and, and the button and mm-hmm. blowing things up. You don't Basically, need- yeah. Anything with a vertically mounted raster monitor and an eight-way joystick you're gonna be able to play this thing so the kit itself came with it was neat i could finally find a whole list of everything that came in these kits so this one came with a pcb it came with the pcb cage like to to go around the pcb which by this point by 1983 was something that was required by the fcc so it wouldn't have been required on earlier games so even if you're putting out to convert and you give someone a new pcb they have to retrofit a cage around it to stop interference so that's kind of interesting as a, a detail I didn't realize was happening by 83. You get the wire harness, you get a marquee panel, you get the side panel art. So it's actually a, a kit that would ship with side panel art. Though when I find online sales of converted cabinets, they never seem to actually have the side panel art on it. So it doesn't seem like that was used that much. Um, you get a control panel overlay and the button decals. So you don't get new buttons, you just get artwork and then like decals to put on your buttons to say that it's turned into a fire button um and then you get like a player instruction decal to stick over the the bezel art and you get a copyright seal so they would send you the marquee art and then you would have a separate thing that was the copyright like sort of the proof that it's an original to stick over the marquee i don't know why they would do that as separate graphics kind of weird um Currently, there's a full cabinet, like a full original cabinet for sale at a company called Wayne's World's, no, Wayne's World of Home Amusements. It's in Florida. So I'll have a link to that in show notes in case you want to pick one up. It's $675, which I think is kind of <laughs> pricey for this game, but most of their cabs are in the 500 to 1100 range and seem in very good condition. So not the cheapest place to get games, but they have a huge, huge quantity of games for sale there. Um, and sort of high-end pricing, but I guess if you get a warranty and you know they're clean, and I guess there's some advantage to that. Uh, in the Nintendo Age forum, back in 2009, somebody posted a photo of a Megazone cocktail cabinet that was for sale in their area. And the poster wrote that they didn't think this was a Nintendo cabinet, but they weren't sure. They were correct. This was not a Nintendo cabinet. <laughs> and the seller of that was asking 125 bucks, which is cheap for a working cocktail of any sort. Um, and the thread never got to reply to, so I don't know if it sold or not. I would assume it did. The photo definitely appears to show just a generic cocktail cabinet that had been converted using the conversion kit um, right up to the point where the, the person just took the the marquee panel and stuck it on the top of the, the cabinet, on, like onto the side of the monitor, um, as if it was just a big sticker on top of the cabinet. So just somebody just used the kit and converted a generic cocktail cabinet into one of these. So there you go. That's another option I guess you could do. Yes. Yeah, so, so this, in other words, is not one that's going to join the Carrington hall of fame, uh, of, of cabinets that you just, no, but I dug have. it. Like I actually did have fun playing it. The cabinet itself is generic. The cabinet itself doesn't even really exist. It was just a kit. Anything could be this cabinet, but I'm not nearly as negative on this game as most online reviews are. It seems to be a game 
pretty much universally panned, and I think that's unfortunate because I thought it was a fun, frantic shooter, perfectly serviceable, and I actually had fun playing it this week. Yeah, me too. I, I this is I I will play probably play this again if mm. I remember to. Um, I mean, it's not know. one of the big... I mean, Konami's got a lot of great shooters. Yeah. I mean, we discussed Juno first before, which was new to me, and I totally love and still love and keep coming back to playing. That's a great game. And they're mostly known, for, I guess, for the you know the big three shooters. You've got Gradius, uh, Parodius, and what was the one in it? Twinbee. So, like, there's the three big shooters for Konami, but they also had lots of other shooters, and, you know, they're, they're good at shooters. And I think this is a perfectly decent one. Like, this is a fun game. If I was an arcade, I would drop a quarter in here, and I think you get your money's worth. Uh, Megazone was not ported to anything until recently. It showed up on um, Microsoft Game Room service for the Xbox 360 and uh, games for Windows Live in um, 2010. Wow, cool. Yep. And again, this may have been because it was uh, so similar to other shooters and and stuff that you could get at the time that they figured, you know, why bother? Right. Um, How'd you do, Carrington? Uh, Not great, but not terrible. I mean, I'm not great at shooters. By shooters, I mean arcade games in general, to be honest. Let's face it, I can no longer convince anybody to look at my scores over the past year and a half. I'm really not great at it. But I had fun playing this. Uh, my best score was 41,330, which is a decent showing, I think. Not fantastic, but pretty good. I got to shoot some big eyeballs. And things. <laughs> um, I also noted that the default high score was just 10,000, so I blew past that. That was good. And the default high score is Kozuk, K-U-Z. You, K-O-Z-U-K, and I wonder if that was for Kazuka, even though that's with an S? I don't know. Anyway. Hmm. Anyway, 40, 41,330. What about you, Mike? How'd you do? Uh, I did 128,360 oh, points. Holy cow. Nah, I'm kidding. I just got I just got 28,360. I, oh, you- <laughs> I just wanted to put that one in there because I wanted to hear you melt down again. It's so much fun. I, did, I was like, <laughs> how the heck did you destroy me? So I won and you lost. You and I am won, the king of the universe. Lost, you are the king. Woohoo! <laughs> Actually, you're not the king. Oh. The, the king of this game is Yoshiro Oda, who holds the official record at 2,228,650 points. That's a lot of points. It is. I think all our scores end in zero because I don't think there's any way to get less than zero. Most things we're giving. There are lots of things that would give small points. You can get like 10 for some small things, it seems, for shooting little things. But it's it like you've talked about before. As games get older and older, you get by 1983, 1984, all the scores up in the tens of thousands instead of like five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think only Sorry Charlie goes negative on the points. That's the only game I've ever seen like that. <laughs> It's very, it's a very innovative. It also feature. goes negative on the number of living players. <laughs> I, I credit the designers. It's a very innovative feature. Very, I credit the designers as well. Great designers <laughs> on that one. Fantastic pair of designers on that one. That's right. So I had, you know, overall, I would think my summary on this is not like the best shooter in the world. Uh, but Vic from Ten Pence is totally wrong. This is not an awful game. <laughs> Do not listen to their podcast anymore. Only listen to us. <laughs> Only listen to us over and over on repeat. Um, and I, you know, surprisingly, if when you look at this game, you look at screenshots for this game, you think that's a crappy looking game because honestly, it's not fantastic looking, but it plays well, like it's fast and it's frantic and it's just, it's kind of generic and the music is kind of generic and the sprites are kind of generic and what have you, but it's a, it's a shooter and I think it's a perfectly serviceable shooter and I actually had fun playing it and I think I'll return to it. So it's thumbs up for me. Yeah. They don't, the, the graphics and sound don't really need to be that be better for, for us to have had a good time. Uh, I'm going to give this six and a half angry listener emails out of 10. <laughs> very good. Very good. So we liked it this week. Uh, what about next week? 
Uh, well, I guess you'll have to. I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> Click hangs up. That's right. That's what next week is. <laughs> Listen to this. And that brings us to the end of another No Quarter podcast. It was a good one. I liked it a lot. <laughs> Me too. And I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. Bye. You've been listening to No Quarter, the classic arcade podcast. Feedback can be sent by email to noquarter at monsterfeet.com, or you can find us on Facebook as No Quarter Podcast, and on Twitter, we are at No Quarter Show. You can also find us on both the Throwback Network and the Real Retro Junkies Network. All of these links, plus the show notes, are available at monsterfeet.com, and like all Monster Feet podcasts, the original material in this episode has been released to the public domain. Listen to this. <laughs> Let's give me our new, new feed song. Listen to this.